Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we have our interview with author John Farrell. How's it going, Ron? Very good, Ed. I'm looking forward to this. Boy, we just keep uh, having authors one after the other. This is great. I, I know. It, it's, it's making me keep my book count up for the year, which, yeah, you know, no kidding. <laughs> keeps things going. Well, let me read them in here so we can get right to it. John Farrell is a writer and producer working in Boston, a graduate of Harvard College with a BA in English and American Literature. John has written for The Wall Street Journal, New Scientist, The Boston Globe, and National Review and writes a science blog for Forbes. In 2010, he was a Templeton Cambridge Journalist Fellow in the Sciences and Religion. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, John Farrell. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Well, your book that we're going to talk about today is The Clock and the Camshaft and Other Medieval Inventions We Still Can't Live Without. So my first question is, how did you come to write this book? Um, it's, it started out, I sort of backed my way into it um, through history of science. Um, my first book was um, a kind of a science bio about the, uh, the Belgian priest who came up with the first version of the Big Bang Theory. And as I was researching that book and doing some, uh, the history of science in Europe, you know, prior to uh, cosmology and all of the things that we could, uh, in the headlines these days, it struck me uh, how much of the foundation for the scientific revolution was laid two to three to four to five centuries before, you know, Isaac Newton and Descartes and um, Galileo and Copernicus. Uh, so it was just kind of in the back of my mind, like, oh, this would be a good idea, you know, for the next book, you know, if, if I live long enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me uh, just read a little bit of an intro here that, that I want, wanted to talk to you about. And in the book, you write, it may seem an, uh, seem odd to begin a history of medieval technology at such a basic level. You're talking about the hand crank with the simplest agricultural tools invented in antiquity compared to the technology and power sources uh, of today and developments like the heavy plow and the breast harness for horses in conjunction with ideas that put into practice uh, such a, a system of Three field crop rotation hardly seemed to merit the term technology, yet alone these t tools that cons uh, constituted a breakthrough. Talk about these breakthroughs, that w what they were, and, and were they really breakthroughs or, or break widths, so to speak? Was it little li incremental changes or were they explosions? Um, in the case of um, like the farming tools and so forth, it was it was sort of break width. They were, uh, in fact, I think uh, kind of running throughout the whole book. And what always fascinated me is the idea that um, people would pick up the tools nearby that might have been originally for a different purpose and then uh, repurpose them in really ingenious ways. And um, so starting after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, you had these sort of pre-existing you know, innovations like the breast harness for the horse or uh, not really three crop. Uh, three-field crop rotation that really was kind of developed i think in the monasteries you know after the collapse of rome and and the monasteries were starting to kind of recover and and build for people um 
but also the plow, um, the heavy plow, was invented in Italy around the time while the Roman Empire still flourished, but it was kind of confined to the northern part of the country where the soil was heavier and where they needed something like that. Uh, and then after Rome collapsed, um, those things, the pieces were kind of picked up by the people who, who sur- not only survived, but were moving further and further north into Europe, whether it's because they wanted to you know, break out for adventure or because they were fleeing uh, the waves and waves of invaders who were coming in after the fall of Rome. Um, but uh, your point is well taken. I, a lot of these things were really, uh, let's, what, can, what else can we do with these things we've been using for so long nobody's really thought about? And one of those things that you talk about and then you later pick up on is that, that we, humanity had the, the, the crank for, for quite some time, then seemed to lo- have lost it and then had to re-pick it up. So talk a little bit about that story. Sure. Um, it's interesting. It shows up you know, after disappearing. Um, it was probably, I, I think, the most um, noticeable use of it was for uh, the Antikythera mechanism, you know, that kind of fantastic ancient computer that was unearthed 100 years ago. Uh, Thanks for was, saying that. I never knew how it was pronounced, just I so hope, you know. <laughs> I hope I'm getting it right. You know. <laughs> um, but um, that was almost certainly powered by a hand crank, you know, basically a computer, you know, probably for instruction purposes, teaching uh, students, you know, um, what they thought the model of the heavens was at the time. And then it sort of disappears um, and shows up again a few centuries later. Uh, well, I should say it was recently discovered that it showed up uh, relatively soon, uh, while the Roman Empire was still flourishing, um, uh, and it's—I'm uh, kind of drawing a blank on the name of the place—but in Turkey, they found a sarcophagus, kind of a gravestone engraving that showed in extreme detail what was basically um, a sawmill powered by, you know, um, uh, a vertical uh, water mill. And you can see clearly, whoever engraved this obviously wasn't just making it up because all of the, the detail is there. And it was a, a hand crank, you know, attached to um, the gear wheel that was driving, driving the saws. And this is the second or third century, if I recall correctly. Um, so uh, it definitely, it, well, it may have disappeared for a while. It was still in use. And then uh, it shows up again c- centuries later in the Middle Ages uh, when... Um, they were building sawmills for the purposes of sawing wood and, you know, building um, in uh, Europe and northern Europe. And th- these, of course, were all mostly powered by water wheels, right? Yes. Is that correct? Yes. So talk yeah. a little bit about the water wheel. I, f- I, f- I find the, the – the, and you have some great illustrations in the book, by the way, so I highly recommend that people get a hold of it for that. But on how these water wheels work, then there were different kinds of them as well. Yes, they were. Um, they were uh, – the horizontal water wheels, uh, water mills were um, – the simpler kind, the kind that poorer people could probably, you know, put together on their own, provided they had access to a reasonably powerful uh, river. Um, and it was assumed for a long time that um, we tend to assume that in terms of invention, uh, the simpler always precedes the more complex. And and here again, I found that it was kind of a, a strange reverse where actually the complicated vertical water mill, uh, which the Romans used, uh, came about probably even before um, the expansion of uh, horizontal water mills, which can be kind of, I don't want to slap together, but built much more easily um, with um, fewer resources. Um, in other words, you just drive a chute of, funnel a chute of water off the stream into a little building where you have uh, a horizontal wheel at the edge of, you know, on, the, on the bottom of an axle, and that mm-hmm. can be used to power um, a grinding stone, say, on the second floor for a grinding grain. Um, whereas the vertical uh, mills had to make do, they basically had to operate with, um, 
gear wheels, you know, perpendicular to each other so that you had a shaft, a camshaft, uh, would drive um, um, cams that could power all sorts of mechanisms, not just grinding grain. Uh, and it seems that those were invented early on, not later. Um, so that, that's kind of one of the interesting things um, I, I discovered uh, in researching the book. But uh, to your point, the fascinating thing is, you know, especially after the fall of the Roman Empire, people are just trying to survive, meaning, you know, put food on the table. But once you discover this kind of mechanism, um, uh, water-powered uh, mills, you begin by making food so that you can survive. But then you start thinking like, well, look, if we add a, uh, an axle, like a shaft and a camshaft, we can also use this besides, you know, uh, grinding grain. We can start pounding cloth to make clothes. We can start pounding ore, you know, for building. Uh, we can drive forge bellows for the blacksmiths. And um, hundreds and hundreds of years into the future, this kind of staple technology remains like the foundation of this expansion into Europe and all these other things. Of course, leading up to the mechanical clock, well, again, made with pretty much all the same uh, constituent parts. Well, and talk about the, the, the evolving camshaft. I mean, I think we, we all kind of know what it is, sort of, because we know our car has one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but, but, but when it comes to how it, how it evolved, it really just, it, like, it first started off just like a knob on, the, on, on one side that was, do, and then, I guess, almost discovered by accident that it was knocking into something and then created this ability to cr then do all of these other things. So talk about the evolving camshaft. Yes. So um, it looks like the fairly earliest use of it was in China, where they used it. Again, they added the cams to uh, the axle so they could basically um, uh, push up and down trip hammers, uh, whose purpose was to haul rice, you know, basically uh, smashing rice. And um, initially, I think people thought, well, somehow that technology migrated westward uh, and got picked up in Europe. But again, some more recent discoveries uh, show that, again, the Romans... Um, were using, must have been using something like camshafts to power uh, trip hammers for smashing ore in Spain. And when I say that's a recent discovery, like within the last 20 or 30 years, and it kind of mm -hmm. filters through the academic scholarship. Um, and I think then what happened is uh, um, uh, Muslim engineers picked up on this themselves, and it's through them that it passed into Europe, where, you know, as I said, it could be used for just anything you could put your mind to, like, you know, making clothes, um, powering uh, uh, um, uh, blacksmiths, you know, forges, um, uh, crushing ore, um, all sorts of uh, basically things. There was no whatever they could think of doing with it, they would do with it. Yeah, there was quite some ingenious ways that they they you know very much reminds me of that old game mouse trap. There was <laughs> like a <laughs> sort of and and kind of a um, a Rube Goldberg d d device, right? They would just kind of add things on. And you say that most of this stuff, you know, the 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 inventors of these is is unfortunately lost to history. We, we think that it, it probably was not people of means. It was probably just somebody who had an idea and said, "Let me try this out," and lo and behold, it became something new. So, talk a little bit about the background of these people that that must have been doing some of these inventing yes and it, it on the one hand it's kind of sad we don't know who they are but on the other hand it kind of gives you faith in the fact that well these are just everyday people like you and me who had a problem to address and they went ahead and addressed it um and then we kind of you know benefit from the technology that they invented um yes it's it's fascinating that um for example in the example of the mechanical clock uh, we have no idea who invented it. I mean, I should say no idea. We figure it was probably a team of blacksmiths working with millwrights, uh, perhaps at the suggestion of a bishop who wanted to build not so much a 
time pe- uh, keeping clock. But first, he was interested in how can we automate the ringing of church bells uh, so some poor monk doesn't have to stay up till 2 a.m. every night or, you know, and kind of, you know, uh, labor saving or, or letting more people sleep. Um, and in, indeed, the, fir- the word for clock actually does derive from bells, you know, through Old English and Latin. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a fascinating um, uh, topic because we can only kind of infer, you know, how it must have been done. But uh, once you get into the idea of um, using water power, and of course they were using windmills as well, it seems like kind of a natural step to say, hey, is there a way we could use gravity to also be a source of energy to like do something that runs something that uh, could last, say, 12 hours instead of, you know, every three or four hours when if you were using a water clock or <laughs> a candle clock, you know, somebody has to light the new one. It, it, has mm-hmm. to, it requires a lot more supervision. So um, it's an interesting, in the case of the clock, it's really a fascinating example of just intuition. Um, they had no mathematics. They had no principles of Newtonian dynamics. But somebody, like these group of guys, figured out um, by pro- trial and error how to very carefully balance a weight to counterbalance the force of gravity. So you could literally you know, run a clock for 12 hours or 24 hours and you know, tick-tock, tick-tock. That's literally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what the device was doing, the virgin foliate. And... Um, it's too bad we don't know who those gentlemen were because <laughs> uh, you'd build a, you know, build a statue to them uh, because um, it's probably the most famous in purely European medieval invention um, yeah. as opposed to a lot of the other ones that were kind of you know, adopted and, and improved. Well, John, this is great, but it's uh, flying by as it usually does. We're up against our first break. want to remind our listeners that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We do that each week. And our first break here is sponsored by Melio, an accounts payable solution that both you and your clients will love. Go to melio.com slash TSOE to get started for free. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Accountants and bookkeepers, listen up. Save time by streamlining your customers' payables with Melio. Melio lets you make all your customers' business payments on one simple dashboard. There's no monthly fees, and you can send ACH transfers for free. Best of all, Melio syncs with your accounting software, so everything is organized. Do yourself and your customers a favor. Join Melio so you can spend less time on payments and more time growing your firm. Visit Melio.com slash accountants for more information. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, 
package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with John Farrell, and he's the author of The Clock and the Camshaft. John, is so cool to be able to talk about innovations and medieval technology. Um, you know, we talk a lot about AI and the blockchain, and, and that's what I really wanted to have you on, because when I was scanning through your book, I just kind of looked at the table of contents and said, oh, yeah, we got to talk to John. This is cool. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's all nice and concrete. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But but like, but like you say, you know, other other... Uh, uh, other inventions that we still can't live without. And we'll get into some of that. But I, I want to back up to how you define technology, because I found this really interesting. You said you define technology as tools and techniques, plus practical skills and knowledge needed to invent, manufacture, and improve upon those those things. And I, it just made me think of what we, we had Thomas Sowell on early on on the show. And he said, you know, the caveman had the same resources we do but he didn't have the knowledge to bring the bear on those resources. So his standard of living was, was subpar to ours, but the knowledge part of that equation is critical, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And you know, for so long, the knowledge has to be passed on only verbally from fathers to sons or whatever. Um, and then once finally you start having, you know, written, written records, um, I think that probably helped it incrementally, you know, quicker, you know, not quick enough for us, of mm -hmm. course, but, uh, it's this kind of steady build because um, um, uh, then someone could actually write down the directions or, you know, it, and interesting that sarcophagus we were talking about in the last segment, in a sense, that's kind of a um, uh, a written record because whoever, if there was, you know, uh, a mill right there who saw that he would probably look and he didn't know about a sawmill. He might've been able to figure it out just looking at um, this kind of chiseled, you know, diagram into the gravestone. So um, yeah, whatever way we find to, to, save knowledge outside of our brains is <laughs> also just a hugely important step forward um, uh, in, in terms of invention. Absolutely. The other thing, interesting thing I found is you, you quote some historians that say, you know, technology, you normally think technology changes society. I think about the automobile or something like that. But in fact, historically, it has more often been the reverse. Society develops technology to address the changes that are already taking place within it. Yes. That's yeah. it. Can, can you expound on that? Because that's so counterintuitive to me. Yeah, it is. It's funny because we, we all kind of grow up with, um, you know, whatever the latest car first, you know, the latest car, this car is better, go out and buy it, even if you don't really necessarily 
need it. And now, of course, we're, we're slaves to whatever the latest model but, iPhone <laughs> is coming down the pike. Um, I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating, but there is now, uh, because we have such a big economy in place, um, a drive to uh, push the sale or the adoption of technologies just because, you know, it could sell or, uh, and less so. Now, it's true that a lot of um, improvements are actually like, oh, this is great. I'm glad they finally came up with this aspect of the iPhone or the car uh, because um, people have been, you know, asking for it for a long time. Uh, but that's in a kind of very telescoped um, kind of period of like just within our lives. Whereas before, I think, um, uh, there was more kind of uh, pressure to just uh, uh, invent things because you needed something quickly. Um, and, and going back uh, to the question of, um, you know, the topic of the water mills, which became generators of power to drive different tools, um, they in turn were kind of put together um, from pieces, um, uh, consti um, constituent parts that were already being used by farmers for irrigation, you know, for bringing water to their crops, especially in the Middle East where, you know, water was, you know, a lot harder uh, to come by. Um, but except the, the energy flow is kind of in the reverse. You were basically using water wheels to send water, you know, out into the field to irrigate. And in order to do that, you know, for example, when they created um, uh, the Norier, which is basically a gear driven water wheel, um, uh, there's the tech, there's, you know, some, some evidence of, you know, the interlocking gear wheels. And then when they, when they're ready, it's like, geez, we could certainly use water power, you know, for grinding grain. This guy, the farmers are already using this, this interesting contraption to, to basically push water out into the fields. What if we reverse it and use the water power, you know, to grind our grain instead of having to do it by hand. Um, and, and of course those were around before uh, the mill. So there's definitely um I think a strong inference that again uh, they adapted technology that was basically uh, used for irrigation um, uh, to drive uh, mills for powering, you know, one, you know, grinding grain for food, but then you know all the other things that came after. Um, I don't know uh, what kind of film buffs you are, but uh, you may remember in the the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, one of the early scenes mm -hmm. where Lee Van Cleef is first introduced. He approaches a farm and there's a little boy on a donkey, and he's it's Anoria. He's basically driving the gears, you know, to um, push the water up and irrigate the field. And I never paid any attention to that scene, of course, until I started writing this book. This book I was like, hey, sure. wait. So I went back and put the disc in. It's like, and Leon, Leon was such a, um, a clever filmmaker. He would make use of whatever uh, beautiful sets he could get his hands on. And I'm sure that was an, a legitimate actual farm in Spain. And he just said, hey, can we use this for this shot um, and, you know, uh, pay you whatever. Uh, but it, it's it's a nice touch where, you know, it doesn't really add anything to the story in terms of the plot. Uh, but now you can look at it and think, well, that's something that was probably invented, who knows, 2,500 years ago uh, and was and is still in use, you know, um, um, in Spain. And of course, we know a lot of these um, simple farm tools are still crucial uh, to people in you know poorer parts of the world, South America and Africa. And they still, you know, they're still uh, worth their weight in gold <laughs> for those for those purposes. Right. You know, you were talking to Ed a little bit about the three developments, the heavy plow and the horse and the three crop rotation. Um, the heavy plow, you say more often, I mean, no, no one family could afford one of these. So more often it was a public investment of the community. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which, again, is it, uh, th there's a lot of, um, you know, a fascinating aspect of the social uh, impact and the social need for these uh, for these tools. Um, and um Along with, you know, uh, not just the uh, 
the need for the community, but the, the, the sense of independence. Um, I talk some a bit in the book about how once the monasteries, you know, began to build their own mill, mills, they sort of colluded with the, the local dukes to force the poorer peasants to have to bring their grain uh, to the monastery and pay a fee. And that was aroused a lot of resentment because they were like, why do that when we can, we have, our, at the very least, we have our own hand, uh, hand mills uh, as well as, you know, horizontal mills we can do on our own. We don't want to have to pay you. Um, so you can already see some strife arising, even in the, the early part of the Middle Ages, where, you know, regular people want to uh, assert their independence and come together kind of freely when they need to address a need that needs to be met and not be told that, well, no, you have to do it this way or that way uh, and also pay us. Right. The, talk about the horse uh, emerging as the primary draft animal because it replaced the oxen and even the ho horses were faster than oxen, but they were also higher maintenance too, weren't they? Yes, they were. And um, it's interesting, I think for, again, for some of the poorer communities, uh, they, they never stopped using oxen because they were cheaper to feed. And it just, it just meant that you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be as kind of um, productive. Uh, and I'm imagining horses were probably adopted again, probably by feudal Lords, you know, people who had the money and they could afford to um, dedicate, say one of those three fields to growing oats to feed the horses. Um, and the same with monasteries, but uh, it's interesting that up until, Oh, you know, the middle, the early middle ages early to middle middle ages um uh horses were still just thought of as basically cavalry you know for military purposes um even in the roman empire uh, the horses were reserved strictly for the cavalry and and that kind of um development and they all relied on oxen which were um uh, a lot cheaper to feed and, and they were durable um and uh, I don't know if you noticed, there's a picture in my book, uh, like an over a hundred year old picture of a New Hampshire farmer. And he's mm. got his two oxen with the, with the yoke. And yep. uh, I, I, I found out recently that was from a, a neighbor uh, up in the Franconia area who was friendly with my parents who bought uh, an old house up there. And it turned out that that yoke in that very picture was in the second floor of the barn that my parents bought. <laughs> I oh, didn't wow. know this for years. Oh, I know. Wow. So, and uh, again, when you can actually touch this thing and you realize, and the thing is heavy, I mean, it would take two people to get it down, <laughs> but it's beautifully wow. made, you know, very smooth and, you know, handcrafted. Um, but again, it's kind of fascinating to, to come into physical contact with these, uh, these kind of everyday tools. And then of course, in the end of the eight, 800s or thereabouts, the horseshoes came in, but you point out that that was already known in the Roman era which was kind of interesting, but that, that had to have a huge effect as well. Yes. Yeah. Because you know, horses, I think, uh, um, as opposed to oxen were much more vulnerable to splitting their, their hooves. And, um, you know, again, that was probably another added incentive, um, to, uh, to use horses once you figured out how to put shoes on them that would, uh, that would last. Exactly. And then, um, I, I, I love the chapter on the crank and the camshaft because you point out that the camshaft, is the first example of machine programming in human history. Yes, that's funny. That was, uh, I didn't even think about that until I was reading uh, Jeremy Northam's book, which I, I referenced. But it is, a, when you think about it, it's a kind of programming because uh, depending on what kind of a mill you were developing and what kind of, what you were doing with the hammers, uh, whether you were um, crashing ore or fulling cloth, uh, especially in the case of fulling cloth, the, the way you basically positioned the cams allowed you to time the hammers 
So one hammer could go and then the next one and the next one, uh, probably so that, you know, the Fuller's son or whoever could get in there and get the, the clothes out before getting, you know, crushed, <laughs> if it, you know, <laughs> if they're running them all at the same time. Well, it was really cool, too. Uh, you pointed out that turning the millstone, that's where we get the the expression, you know, the daily grind. The daily grind, yes. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, the other thing, uh, and we've only got about a minute, but you, you point out that Gutenberg's real achievement was not so much the invention of movable type as it was the printing press and printing ink. Yes. Yeah. I think he, it was like, again, he kind of put everything into one standalone machine, you know, block, you know, block printing had obviously been invented yeah. earlier than him. Uh, and I think his, his genius was refining the ink um, for paper and then uh, creating the, you know, the standalone printer, um, which, you know, sadly he lost because, you know, he basically went bankrupt and the, the lawyer who loaned him the money eventually took, took back all the property and poor Gutenberg went off and kind of, spent the rest of his life working for some other printer in obscurity. And then the lawyer uh, started his own publishing house and kind of, you know, uh, went on from there. So uh, that's kind of a, a sad end uh, for, you know, someone whose name we remember with respect because it was an achievement. Right, right. Well, John, this has been fantastic. Unfortunately, we're up against our next break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel where you can subscribe to our show and get bonus content. And that is at patreon.com slash TSOE. That channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. It's a matter of mind. Check them out at 90minds.com. And if you do join our Patreon channel at a certain tier, you can get a shout out like Geraldine Carter, who hosts Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Highly recommend that. So check that out. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned.
tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with John Farrell, and his book is called The Clock and the Camshaft. And John, in that book, Chapter 7 has a, has a really, I think, intriguing title, From, from Greek to Arabic and Back Again. And <laughs> one, one of the, the, the things that you tell the story of is the origin of the medieval translation moment. Talk about what was the medieval translation moment, uh, movement, I'm sorry, movement. movement. It was actually... Um... It was actually more than one. I, I was corrected on this by one of my scholar friends who said <laughs> it wasn't just a movement. It was several. I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. But, um, but movement sounds more kind of definitive for the purposes of the book. But there were basically what happened was um, uh, during, um, during the pushback, I think it's called the reconquest in Spain, when uh, before the, well, maybe even before the Crusades, when Europeans were starting to go back into Spain to reconquer territory that had been lost uh, to Muslim domination, um, and the same in Sicily, and even, you know, over to some extent in some of the uh, islands, um, uh, the Greek islands, they discovered, um, they basically rediscovered a lot of, you know, what we now call the classics, you know, Aristotle and and Plato, um, that had been lost after the collapse of Rome, uh, completely lost. I mean, there were a few... I think a few of Aristotle's book, maybe a piece of his books on logic had survived, but almost all the books that they had heard about, you know, the metaphysics, the physics, you know, meteorology, uh, were basically just lost. And they get to, they get into Spain and, and suddenly they're finding uh, all sorts of copies uh, of all of this work. And what had happened basically, um, and that's sort of my pun in the title is early on, um, um, when uh, the Muslims took over all of the Middle East, they basically uh, had um, uh, Syrian Christians translate the Greek classics into Arabic for them. Uh, and then those they had, and you know, as they expanded across Africa and into Spain, they kept those. And then um, as the reconquest was beginning to take place, um, Europeans uh, in the cathedral schools, they heard that, oh, we're hearing that there's some really fascinating material there. At the time, they were mostly interested in astronomical uh, material, meaning like astronomical tables that would help them, you know, predict the dates for Easter going way out, you know, for religious rituals and things like that. So um, um, to kind of encapsulate the story, they were like, let's send some of our brighter monks down there to look at this material and see if they can translate it. And uh, I think Gerard of Cremona was uh, one of the most uh, famous because he went down there and basically spent the rest of his life uh, translating. His interest was in trying to find uh, Ptolemy's Almagest, you know, the great compendium of kind of classic uh, uh, Greek astronomy. Um, uh, but once he was there, he realized, oh, this is a, life, <laughs> a lifetime's worth of work, and, and more people began to join him. That was in Toledo. Um, the, the southern part of Spain remained under the control of um, uh, Islamic, uh, the Islamic caliphates. So once you began translating this stuff, though, and bringing it back into the cathedral schools, it, uh, it um, not surprisingly generated a lot of um, one, interest, uh, excitement, and alarm, <laughs> depending on where you were in the totem pole. Uh, the bishops and the sort of leaders of the church were, um, became alarmed about uh, all this access to Aristotle's work, which, of course, Aristotle was, quote, you know, pagan, unquote. So he had ideas about the universe that were contrary to, you know, traditional Christian doctrine. So all of a sudden you had uh, the question of like, well, wait a minute, how are we going to control, you know, what the universities are teaching? 
uh, and they quickly found out that they really couldn't. I mean, they did try. Um, but from our perspective, I think um, the effect that that old, old knowledge coming back into Europe uh, was huge. Um, and I think was, again, the kind of the early phase of what would eventually lead to the scientific revolution, because suddenly Europe came back in touch with uh, so much of the material, um, you know, Plato, Aristotle, a lot of other authors. But in addition, also, they were introduced for the first time to Muslim philosophers and, and doctors and uh, jurists and so forth, all of whom had their own interpretations, because after all, Islam, you know, uh, they believe in the same God. So they had, in their own way, they had the same problem with Aristotle that the, the Christians had at the cathedral schools. And they had their own way of, you know, kind of how do we interpret this or how do we teach it? So um, the translation movements really had, um, uh, they weren't obviously an invention, uh, but they were a kind of a sociological uh, transformation. Uh, and the cathedral schools becoming universities was an invention, again, in a sociological sense. And uh, when you combine these two together, you really kind of um, lay the groundwork. I would say that uh, the scientific revolution was probably inevitable. Once you had all this new information, this new material, and then a system of universities that could now share with each other. You know, I mean, in those days, as you know, everybody spoke Latin. So you could be a French uh, teacher who could teach in Britain, or he could, he could teach at the University of Bologna. He could teach you know, anywhere um, because everybody spoke Latin. And, and again, that had a huge, a huge effect on, in kind of creating a kind of cultural intellectual tradition uh, all out of you know, sort of the lost fragments of uh, ancient civilization. And you mentioned the the Arabic connection. I want, want you to talk a little bit about uh, Ibn Rushdi. Ibn Rushd, yes, Ibn, yes, yeah. He was yes. Uh, he um, he caused a lot of trouble. Uh, <laughs> he did a uh, hundred <laughs> years after he was dead. <laughs> um, it's fascinating you bring that up because he um, he was sort of you know how you know the old expression more Catholic than the Pope. Um, he was sort of more Aristotelian than even Aristotle um, because um, Aristotle had written. You know, he wrote a book on the soul, you know, the consciousness. What does it mean? And um, the problem with some of Aristotle's books were because they were lectures, they were probably written down by a student. So they're not written, say, as clearly as Plato's dialogue. So there were places where it wasn't quite clear what he was saying about the human mind. And then Ibn Rushd comes in and says, well, Aristotle clearly meant that there is one universal mind and we all partake of it. We don't have individual souls. And the Catholics are like, whoa, wait a sec, time out. <laughs> this is like, whoa, we can't teach this. <laughs> and, um, for example, uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, was very vigorous in opposing this. Now, he loved um, reading the commentaries of Ibn Rushd because, again, they helped him understand Aristotle. But he also felt called on to really seriously push back on this because there were some younger instructors at the University of Paris who were like, wow, this is awesome stuff. Um, and then on, on the other side, Thomas was already being attacked by more conservative theologians like St. Bonaventure, who didn't like Aristotle at all. And he thought we shouldn't even be promoting anything like this. So there's Thomas kind of stuck between the two saying, look, guys, there's some really good material here. We can incorporate this into Christian tradition. Let's just calm down. <laughs> and um, that's all in the later part of the 1200s. And, um, and of course, he died. I don't want to say he died young, but he died before he had a chance to finish his work. Um, but yes, uh, Ibn Rushd was kind of a, a really a catalyst in that kind of um, that kind yeah. of controversy. In, in a way, you know, one of one of the the reasons uh, Summa Theologica came about, right? Because he he, he 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 was Thomas was pushed into it by by both sides, as you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. 
So um, I wanted to, to just uh, check with you on something that you know, we're both, uh, Ron and I are both f- fans of Deirdre McClowski. I don't know if the scholar out of the University of Chicago, she's written some really interesting books and on, and on uh, the bourgeois trilogy. And one of the things that she points out is that the Industrial Revolution, as it's called, was really because we changed our, uh, our, our, the way our thinking around innovation she said, we, we, we began to give dignity to those who invented and created rather than in some cases kill them. She tells a great story about a, a, an inventor in Rome who uh, invented this type of glass that was almost unbreakable and he was killed. <laughs> so we can't have that. Yeah. We can't have that. <laughs> so we'll ruin the market. <laughs> right. So, so uh, talk a little bit about that. And is that part of the reasons why some of these folks are uh, are unknown? Is because there was, a, a, in a, in a sense, some kind of danger sometimes in inventing to a degree. Did you come across anything like that in your in your research? Not really. I think the era I'm talking about is a little too soon for that. Um, okay. Uh, now, I'm, I'm sure some people got killed, like, in trial and error. <laughs> like, whoa, okay, those weights need to be a lot less, you know. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, some of those mills must have been frightening in their size and their scale. And I'm sure you had, you know, people losing limbs and stuff like that. But I, I don't think um, there was any sort of, um, you know, rubbing out someone who created something that, you know, the, the monasteries thought, oh, this is, this is going to put us out of business kind of thing. Um, I think that definitely was something that would have come later. Once, perhaps during the Renaissance, when you now had a whole mercantile class that were dominating certain markets, uh, who could hire killers? Or, <laughs> then, then I think you'd get into that kind of um, that kind of intrigue, um, mm. which is fascinating. Uh, but uh, well, but I, go ahead. So I've got I've got about two minutes left in my segment, and I want to just jump to one other invention that I think was uh, fascinating, mostly because similar to the the uh, the the crank, and you know, and and having lost it and brought it back. It seems that we had some knowledge of lenses for quite a while, but it was a long time before we got to eyeglasses. Yes, yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's it's fascinating. Again, to I've, I, it's funny because all these years I've seen you know kind of costumeic movies where you'd be like you know a monk in his cell and he'd have this big glass ball and you'd be wondering what is that and I didn't realize for years they would use a natural ball filled with water as a reading aid they would literally have to you know roll it over the page so that they could see because their eyes were failing and um uh, the glass thing again was a certain amount of you know luck and happenstance crusaders coming back you know from the middle east um brought these kind of beautifully shaped rock crystals and and right away i think you know some of the scholars in the monasteries noticed hey these these are much better to look through <laughs> than you know, than these water you know balls that we've been using. So they started experimenting with those, um, uh, and then again uh, another discovery in Egypt was were the elements that they could add to crystal to make even even purer glass. Um, and I think, um, it, but it, but it was I think a deliberate discovery. Um, um, and there was actually a guild of Venetian glassmakers who decided, you know what, here's the problem. You can, we can make a lens that you can hold up like a magnifying glass, but coming up with a set of glasses where both lenses are the same, you know, in other words, you know, they, they have the exact, mm-hmm. you know, the right um, uh, vision is going to be harder until they realized we could blow up a crystal ball and then slice symmetrical chunks. Uh, and essentially, you have two lenses now that are from the same ball and they're much closer. And then you can kind of grind them to refine, you know, um, how well you can see with them. And that was, um, but that was like, you know, a lot long, that was, you know, some decades after they were already starting to use um, uh, crystal and glass for magnification purposes. 
so yeah, uh, again, just re really interesting. As I said, to you know, have some part of that technology around for so long, and it took so long to get to where we we needed to get it. But up against our break, uh, John, want to remind our listeners that they can contact Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. I mentioned the show notes that page that you can get there, as well as uh, previews to upcoming shows. And please note that our third break here is sponsored by my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with John Farrell, the author of The Clock and the Camshaft. John, I wanted to ask you about uh, Chapter uh, 4, The Paper Explosion. This is fascinating. Talk a little bit about the history of the paper and, yeah, so, and what um, it replaced. It uh, basically, um, it's kind of fascinating to watch the evolution of, of writing, you know, from, you know, cuneiform, you know, using clay tablets, uh, then into Egypt where they, you know, realized they could use papyrus for making kind of very, you know, semi-permanent scrolls upon which you, should, you could write. Um, and then, um, uh, again, a kind of overlooked bit of history is that early Christians adopted, you know, the codex, which was basically, you know, almost like using shingles, you know, our kind of you know, shingles as pages and then, you know, tying them together and creating essentially small wooden books upon which you could write. Um, and then moving ahead uh, into the monasteries when they started using, you know, sheep and cattle skin, uh, which became an even more durable but very expensive 
time-consuming means of, um, you know, creating, you know, quote, paper, unquote, um, you know, for writing down all their records. Um, and then you have um, in China the invention of the paper we're familiar with, um, which um, basically made its way into Europe through Italy. Um, but the fascinating thing about um, uh, the kind of explosion of paper in Europe was the fact that, again, as we were just talking about poor Gutenberg, you know, he invented the printing press, but had it not been for, uh, again, um, the availability of inexpensive paper, again, made through, you know, those, those great vertical water mills that were able to pound, you know, old rags, whatever, to turn it into uh, the pulp needed to make paper. Um, you wouldn't have been able to um, have the explosion of independent bookshops and, and vendors who could make books for a, a huge demand um, for the public. And this is really, a, again, a kind of a, a key aspect of um, the Renaissance and later the scientific revolution that now ordinary everyday people could afford their own Bible because the paper was so cheap. Um, and you had sprouting up all over Europe, you know, bookmakers. And, and, of, and of course there were pamphleteers. Um, I think it's no surprise that the Protestant Reformation sort of took off right around the time where mm -hmm. people could, you know, they could send each other pamphlets. They could write down their thoughts about, you know, hey, I read the Bible. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't say anything about, you know, whatever sacraments the church has been talking about forever. So you have this kind of, for the first time, um, people other than the clergy uh, can access uh, knowledge that was reserved just to them. And paper was really uh, the, the kind of key because it was so inexpensive once it, once it was produced by, by the mills in Europe and then spread all throughout it. Um, it's a fascinating idea, but equally fascinating is why um, in Europe, again, the combination of that, that classic Roman alphabet that we used, it was much easier to um, to produce books and to produce massive amounts of literature using that kind of limited, you know, uh, classic Roman alphabet. Whereas um, in Islam, though they also had access to printing te technology and knew how to make paper, um, it would never occur to them to subject the Quran to some kind of a, you know, um, block printing. It had to be written by hand. Uh, the same thing in China and Japan, where they had multiple uses for paper. As you know, they would use paper not just for writing, but for creating gorgeous, you know, home decorations. They would even like sliding doors and furniture and so forth. But again, the, the Chinese language of thousands and thousands of characters, uh, it just wasn't practical uh, uh, in any sense that they would have be able to produce the kind of uh, massive output of literature and, uh, and and just, you know, simple data like, you know, merchants in Europe uh, with accounting books and so forth and so on. So um, there again, you have this kind of, you know, fascinating, you know, infiltration of what was something that was already invented um, for writing purposes, but also for other purposes, but then Europeans seizing on it as a way to like, um, to basically go nuts with books um, and the benefits all down through society. Now, um, you know, this is, I think, again, plays into the creation of a, a, a durable middle class. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of uh, also a, a foundation of the Renaissance and the later the scientific revolution. Yeah. You point out when we use parchment, it took about 300 calves to make a Bible. <laughs> I know. It's, like, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can just see the Monty Python sketch riffing <laughs> on that. <laughs> okay. Who's next? <laughs> you know? And of course, our audience would, you know, would love the fact that the demand for paper really exploded because of accounting and bookkeeping. So that's kind of <laughs> neat too. Um, you know, I found chapter six, the cathedral crusade fascinating because you talk about, you know, it took about 10 years to build a castle cathedrals were far more expensive. T talk about that and then talk about how the cathedrals were financed. 
Yes. Um, the, cathedral, the cathedrals are fascinating because here is one of those rare places where we actually do have a name and a person who is can be given some credit for kind of jumpstarting the whole cathedral crusade. And that was the Abbot Suger, uh, who was sort of, um, uh, I wouldn't say put in charge, but he was kind of left uh, to pursue um, the idea of building uh, some new churches and chapels, um, you know, while his king was away in crusades. And he was fascinated uh, or depressed by the lack of light in the kind of standard church or Roman basilica, which was, you know, thick walls, very small windows. Uh, so even during the day, you had um, very little light getting in and the church is being gloomy. Um, and here, I think um, he, he basically engaged, again, you know, nameless master builders, you know, carpenters, uh, stone cutters to say, how can we how can we build the church where we can have more windows? And and this is also happening at the time when, you know, stained glass was becoming a thing. I don't really go into too much detail about um, stained glass per se, but again, it was the idea that we could have, you know, much higher roofs with more light coming in naturally. Uh, and in that, in his case, we do have someone we can say, okay, he jump-started this. And then, then it became again, a kind of a thing where, well, these guys have a cathedral that's this high, let's build a bigger one. And, and then to, it's it's staggering to think that you're going to start a project that you're probably not going to live to finish and that the next generation is going to pick it up. And, you know, I'm from Boston. I don't know if you remember the horrors of the, the big dig. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I, everybody thought that took forever. And that was like, you know, basically 10 years and hugely over budget. And, you know, I think Barney Frank made that famous quip. Wouldn't it be cheaper to just raise the city than rather, you know. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I'm getting off topic, but um but yes, yeah, so you're, you're actually confronted with this idea of you're going to build, you're going to start building something you're not going to live to finish. And I think, again, because of this, uh, the generational um, entrenchment of people, you know, you basically lived and died in the place you were born. Right. So, uh, and I don't think people worried about it that much, but I think there was a kind of foundation of confidence that this, all right, this, I'm, I'm not going to live to see it, but my son will, or his sons will. And um this is worth investing in. And, and of course, first it was, um, you know, some of it was financed by, you know, bringing back relics, you know, most of them fake from the Crusades in the Middle East and putting them on display and getting people to come in, tourists to the city. He would finance it that way. Um, they'd also finance it, you know, less popular ways by, you know, taxation and so forth. Um, but um, uh, a fascinating to think, thing to think about. Um, I mean, I don't know, but you can imagine starting to write a novel that, oh, I'm not going to finish this. I'm going to die and my son will finish it. <laughs> right, right. It's like, we're always so, we're so accused of being short term, you know, next quarter or whatever. And you right. know, these guys working on something that they're not going to see. Well, John, we've only got about a minute left. So real quick, tell us about your book, The Day Without Yesterday, which came out in 2005. Uh, Day Without Yesterday was the biography of George Lemaitre, who is the Belgian uh, a uh, Catholic priest and physicist who came up with what I call Big Bang 1.0, the first version of the Big Bang Theory uh, in mm -hmm. 1931. Um, and his achievement was really, um, he was kind of a generation after Einstein, but he was the first one to realize the dynamics of Einstein's equations, that the universe should be dynamic, not static. And Einstein, uh, he, he had a hard time swallowing this, even though he was the guy who came up with general relativity. He still thought sort of in classic Newtonian terms that the universe is like a Oh, John Freeze. No, if you we follow your equations to their logical conclusion, achievement. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much. This has been wonderful to have you on. And Ed, what do we have on store for next week? 
Ron, we're not exactly sure, but we know we're going to do something with our friend Dr. Reginald Lee and his class out at, at Xavier. But we're going to make it work next week with uh, Dr. Reginald Lee back to the show. All right. Excellent. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage. Building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. Enterprise.com.